Hello and welcome back to I'm Glad You Exist. I am your host, John Leo. On today's episode, I'm joined by a very special guest. In fact, if you have an appetite for podcasts, there's a good chance you already know her. Her name is Tawny Plattis, and she hosts the Death is Hilarious podcast. Tawny is a comedian and voiceover artist who hosts a podcast all about confronting the terrifying reality of death with gallows humour and comical indifference. As I think about it, it used to be that if you were going through something like grief, your help was relegated to either professionals or books you could find on the subject. Roadmaps were few and far between. Now though, in the internet age, there are specialist podcasts, YouTube channels, and all sorts of digital content to help you along the way. I found out about Tawny from I'm Glad You Exist quasi co-founder and good friend of mine, Tanya, who said that we would make a good pairing to talk about the morbid and curious. Well, bonus points for Tanya because she was absolutely correct and this is one of my all-time favourite chats. Content warning is, as you may already suspect, a lot of talk about death and more specifically terminal illnesses. But I would, even if that subject matter worries you a bit, urge you to give this episode a listen. As someone who used to struggle tremendously with death anxiety, I know that it's in having conversations like this one and being open to hearing differing perspectives about grief and loss that my own insecurities have diminished. Search Death is Hilarious to find Tawny's superb podcast online or That Death Pod across all the socials to find out there. Hope you all enjoy the chat and find out why I'm glad Tawny Plattis exists. pleasantly surprised with how good zoom is at recording audio so yeah it's happy not bad. days there <laughs> um cool so i reckon an hour an hour is good good for a chat if you've got that uh beautiful so i mean i guess i just want to jump in straight away then like you've just said that you you've come off um a chat before and then you've got other chats this week are you bored of telling your story? <laughs> I'm like, oh boy, can you can you do it again? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Uh, the last chat that I was on as well, I was doing the interviewing too. So a lot of the times where I'm having conversations with folks, I'm asking them about their life, their work, their grief. As for mine, I do support groups regularly. I, I am on other podcasts too, of course. And I am not tired of telling my story because it is something that I think is really important to share. And I'm really passionate mm. about sharing that to make sure that other people don't feel ostracized or isolated in their experience. Hmm. Because there was something I found um, when I when I went through depression, the first few times of what say going through depression, the first time I got hit by depression, the first few times I'd talk to people about it, I would make it this very big um, cinematic story to really like hammer home, like, you know, you must feel how I feel. But that's, yeah, as you get, as you have to tell the story more and more, you realize you can cut bits out and you can actually edit it and go, right, here's the yeah. main facts. <laughs> you know, you're not actually here for the show of this. You just need to know they're on the same level. So have you felt that, you know, the story has developed the way that you you tell it, the just the the very nature of how you present yourself with it. 
A bit. I, I think what I do is more like I adjust it for the audience as well. So if somebody needs to hear mm. certain parts of that story and not others, I think I adjust it for that. I think working in mm. entertainment in the industry that I work in, sometimes you have to condense things and then other times you have to really give all those details. So I think it just really depends on the audience as well and what they're mm. there for and what I want them to understand. Because for my story, there's so many different parts to it. So I try to take mm. into consideration what this person needs or wants to hear from it and how much time we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of like a horrible thing to think, all right, give me the elevator pitch for your Right, book. yeah, but that's one <laughs> of the things. It's what I do. You know, I, I have a nonprofit and I'm a comedian. So <laughs> you think about your grief really truly being an elevator pitch and that's so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough well look I feel like for anyone listening they're like what's the thing tell us about the thing so perhaps you could regale us with your story um because I'd, I I heard it on one of the podcasts that, that Tanya sent to me but I feel like I would benefit from hearing it again as well um and just yeah it would be it'd be yeah great to hear. so my husband was born with something called hypoplastic left heart syndrome <clears throat> Excuse me. So he had a single ventricle in his heart instead of two. He had three chambers in his heart, or I'm sorry, he had, yeah, three chambers in his heart instead of four. And his heart was a mirror image on his chest. And it's a very rare condition. I, I It's been a minute since I've looked at those stats, but I think it's like one in 300,000 births. And mm. hypoplastic left heart syndrome didn't have a survival rate of more than a couple of years until I think two to five years before my husband was born in 1990, they developed something called a three-stage Fontan or Fontaine, but it was a procedure to allow his heart to function somewhat more normally. Um, so the oldest person with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, I think is in their mid to late thirties now in 2022, mm. um, just because the survival rate was not anything past like infancy. So my husband yeah. grew up like very aware of his mortality, knowing that, you know, wow. he could die at any moment. That's another thing with folks that have hypoplastic left heart syndrome or HLHS they can be going along doing fine and then just die. And he told me that when we started dating, we went to junior high and high school together, but I didn't know all the details of his condition until we started dating when we met at a mutual friends party in our early twenties. And he was like, you know, I want to be straightforward with you. I have this heart condition. I might just die at any moment. And I was like, okay, I'm still all in. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, that's either the most serious thing you've ever heard or it's like, oh, well, that's a pretty odd way of getting out of a relationship. <laughs> know, right? but... <laughs> I'm like, you can just tell me that you're not interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't have to go those lengths for right? ghosting. <laughs> well, he literally ghosted me in 2019. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. This I expected this chat to be interesting and I'm already <laughs> I'm already nervous. So this is great. Oh, I, I thrive <laughs> off of that. <laughs> Let's do it then. Let's go. Um so, so just because I feel like there's going to be questions I have throughout your telling the story, so I hope Not you don't mind me interjecting. With with your husband, uh, sorry, what was his his name? George. So when you say like he grew up aware of his own mortality, I feel like that's such an interesting concept at all because I my understanding or my awareness would be that it, you have to get to a point where your brain can even deal with the idea of death before it can go like oh i understand what's going to happen because i mean everyone has to deal with their own mortality at some point but i've always had this thing where i feel like if i just say to myself i think i'm going to live forever i'm like oh that makes that feels that feels good you know because i still can't accept it so for him you know did you really kind of get an a window into the world of someone who did get that i think so as particularly the window for him. I think it's different mm. for everybody. My husband was very special in the sense of he was extremely intelligent. Like we went to junior high and high school together. So I, I've seen his grades and his SATs and everything. <laughs> you know, I'm like, he's brilliant. He he got into, you know, these Ivy League schools and he was he really was extremely intelligent. And I think with him, it, it really affected how he handled and processed his mortality. You know, you're having these open heart surgeries throughout the first 10 years of your life. And if you're somebody who's very studious, you're learning everything you can about your condition, he would ask mm. his doctors about it. And being the kind of person that he was, he was very analytical and he was able to pick up on things and... So I think with him, he really had no choice but to come to terms with the reality of the situation. And he used dark humor to cope with that. You know, and that's something that we know from that study that was done at the Medical University of Vienna that people that do enjoy dark humor are ones that often have higher cognitive processing skills. They're you know, they're, they're more, uh, intellectuals a lot of times and that completely tracked with him. <laughs> hmm. With, so with your own development, then, cause obviously you're a comedian at that point in your life, when you met George, was that something that you were like, this is something I'm going to move into or, you know, where, where were you in that kind of development for yourself? We, we were both very interested in comedy. We were self-identified comedy nerds. Uh, we were working towards at that time, both exploring that I, I was a child actor. So for me, performance, comedy, everything like that has always been a part of my life. He was also involved in a lot of theater as a kid and he loved it. We had a comedy podcast together too. I am a voice actor now and he did a lot of my editing, engineering, the technical side of things. He helped me run the business, uh, you know, your voice acting business. Mm. And we loved putting, like we, we had a comedy show together. We loved putting our podcast together and working on it. And we both have always had that be a part of our lives, like comedy and using comedy mm. and humor to cope with the things in our 
lives when he started getting really sick in 2019 and he was in and out of the hospital for months at a time we were writing stand-up sketches together we were still creating our podcast together because it was something we could do still that we really enjoyed mm. it, it was very natural for me to continue using that as a way to cope you know comedy with something mm. that was terrible being able to make jokes to find some relief as well as using humor to face what was going on as opposed to running and hiding from it because that's what we were doing and a lot of people I think they see folks who use dark jokes dark humor and there's this perception that you're either deflecting or you're not hand you know you're not like dealing with it you're not handling it or you're you're being very cold about it or very disrespectful and for us it was very much a way to address something that was really hard and really scary. If you can laugh at it, that thing doesn't have power. You have the power. You're taking control. And you're also physically releasing those endorphins if you're laughing, you know? Hmm. I'm conscious. I don't want to ask too many questions about oh, George himself because I feel like, you know, that's his his story. But, you, you know, almost just as like the jumping off point, you know, it's, it sounds like, you know, the, the character that we're kind of building to anyone listening in their head is, is quite a stoic person, like kind of facing this head on. But was there a reality of the fear of, of the unknown of like, what, what is this actually going to be like? What's going to happen? Absolutely. He, he was not like, I have no fear and it's all great. It, there was a lot of back and forth and up and down. There was times where he was like, I, I'm not afraid to die. I'm at peace. I know this. You know, and then there was other times where it, it broke him apart. You know, he was like, I didn't ever think that I'd find somebody who would want to be with me because of my condition. They wouldn't want to deal with it. He's like, he said, <laughs> he said to me, I have always wanted a family. I didn't think I'd, nobody would marry me. And, you know, mm. we were best friends. We found each other. And once we found each other, he had said that he was like, I so very want to be alive now because I want to be with you. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm like, glad to help. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, if my life had been terrible, I'd have been like, oh, well, right. At least I'm going. <laughs> but no, you've made it worth sticking around for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess it's, you know, you, you talk about the, like his perception of what his life could have been and at an early age, almost being told, like, you know, have some expectations of what the future could hold. But then I guess that goes back to your side of the story. You know, this, this is such an extreme curveball to be hit. Like I'm clearly infatuated with this person. Um, it's got quite an early sell by date though. How do I feel about that? And you know, and I, I don't mean this in a callous way, but was there ever a point where you were like, is this worth the risk of me getting really hurt from, from going early something sell like by date? I love that. <laughs> <laughs> see, now I'm using humor to deflect no, from see, the situation. No, I think that's using humor to address. Like, I mean, yeah, that, that, right, the cool. expiration date that. on that one came up quick. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, okay. Not not at the time. We were also very young. We met when I was, was I 23, I think? So we were 
pretty young and he told me all this. And my first thought was always, I want to be with you for as long as I can get you, you know? So it wasn't even a second thought to me. And it was more after the fact when I was in so much pain after my, my best friend and my partner, my, you know, my lover, like he was everything to me when he died. And then I felt like I had nothing. I was like, I could have gone my whole life without having met my soulmate and been none the wiser mm. of like what I was missing. Like this is, can I, can I curse on your podcast? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> <This is> bullshit. <laughs> like I was, I was really upset about it after the fact. And I, I can't remember exactly what it was that gave me the epiphany, but I remember having the epiphany that it wasn't about what I lost. It was about what I gave to him. He never thought he'd have a wife. Mm. He never thought he'd have, have a family and we didn't have kids, but we had a dog that we definitely babied. And he <laughs> was so in love. We were so in love with this dog that we, I, you know, I'm still taking care of our dog. Um, we're so in love with our baby dog. And I was able to give him something he never thought he'd have. He was able to have this. He loved domestic life. He just absolutely adored it. And I, I think about that now as in it's not about what I lost. It's about what he was able to have. If he was only going to have a short time on this mm. earth, I'm really glad that I was able to give him something that he really wanted. Hmm. I, I, Drawing attention again to the fact that this is an interesting conversation in that I don't think typically you hear people talking so frankly and openly about these kind of topics. Was there, a, like, I feel like you, there's, all right, this is going to sound no. absolutely horrible. <laughs> I was about to say that there's no emotion behind what you're saying. What I mean is that it's like, you're not going, oh, this is, this is quite difficult for me to talk about. Like, you've made such peace is what I'm getting from the way you talk about this that you've got to this level and I just wonder has it always been that that's just your personality you were able to be like this or did that take a long oh, this time has been to get years to of therapy in the making I was really really okay. really lucky and I know that sounds funny because my husband died in our kitchen and I found his corpse so most people would be like you are not lucky lady but <laughs> Jackpot. <laughs> yes I was hoping for a body in the kitchen <laughs> Um, I, I was really lucky because I was already in therapy. I had the foresight of knowing I was going to be a young widow. I didn't think I was going to be this young. Like we were hoping with mm. all the medical advances we'd have until our forties or fifties together, as opposed to our twenties. But I was like, I mm. need to prepare for this. I want to have the tools and the skills and be able to like handle this. And I also had a lot of previous trauma in my life that I wanted to address and be able to handle. So I had been in dialect, I have been in dialectical behavior therapy since 2017. And I'm a big evangelical for dialectical behavior therapy, because it is all about acknowledging what's going or acknowledging what's happening. So it's like big on radical acceptance. And what that means is like, this sucks it's awful. The situation that you're dealing with is horrible. But if you don't want to suffer and if you want to enjoy your life and have a life worth living, what are some skills that you can use so you're not suffering anymore? And that was really hmm. 
big to me, finding something like that. Dialectical behavior therapy also has scientific evidence behind it as far as like it being effective goes. That was also very attractive to me. Like I'm like, oh, there's proof that this works, you know? And so being being in dialectical behavior therapy and having those skills, being able to know how to practice radical acceptance was a huge advantage. Mm. And I remember thinking that too, like shortly after my husband died, the day he died, like some hours after thinking like, whoo, I lucked out <laughs> like with having my therapist like ready for this. Like I called her, we were on the phone. I'm like, he died. Like we were, you know, she was there for me that night. She helped me through all this stuff. I had the skills. I had the tools. I was like handling it. You know, it was still extremely painful. One of the things that I had to deal with for the first year was suicidal ideation because I felt so lonely. Mm. I was best friends with my husband and he was my everything. He was my business partner. He was my best friend. He was my romantic partner. And I was, I was closer to him than anybody in my life. I wasn't connect. I, I, you know, I always said like I had people I was friendly with and then I had Mm. my best friend, you know, my husband. So that was really hard because Mm. I felt very alone in the world. Like I was like, I, I don't have a relationship or a connection with anybody else on this planet, even close to what I had with my Mm. husband nobody's going to care if I die now. You know, the, the thing that kept me alive was Mm. comedy still being able to make people laugh, which feels pretty close to feeling loved. If you can make somebody laugh, you know, you're like, at least in this moment, I know that you like me because I'm making you laugh, (laughs) which is very validating. And, um, our dog has periodontal and she won't let anybody brush her teeth but me. And I do love the dog a lot. So I was like, obviously, I have to stay alive. Otherwise, the dog will suffer. And I don't want the dog to suffer. Yeah, this dog needs good gums. Sorry? <laughs> so this yes. dog needs good gums. You know, I, I can't go exactly. anywhere. Exactly. It was very similar um, to the, um, that Ricky Gervais show, Afterlife, when the dog comes in <laughs> and he was going to take his life. And he was like, oh, yeah. my God, I have to feed the dog. And he's like, I would have. I'd be oh, dead God. if it wasn't for the dog needing to eat. And I'm like, yeah. yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, the end of season two, when the dog is like barking at him because he's about to take the pills. Oh, God. It's one of the most powerful moments it's I've ever a seen very in television. Accurate um, <laughs> mm. So with the therapy that you were doing then, was there an awareness of, look, this is a thing that is going to happen at some point, but also these these are the emotions you're going to go through like this suicidal ideation this will be something that is is going to hit you so don't let that be something that's surprising Mm. because i guess you can never jump a step ahead of grief can you you've got to go through it you can't be like oh i don't want to be angry i'm going to avoid the angry stage you've you've just got to let it happen right so i think um it's very different for each person too And it's not linear. It's very weebly wobbly all over the place, back and forth, up and down. It's not a linear progression. Mm. And I think it's very different for everybody too. There, there, because I had dialectical behavior therapy, it helped a lot. And I think my grief looks different in some ways when compared to other people's, but then in other ways, I'm like, oh yeah, I will hear somebody's story and be like exactly what I went through. Absolutely. 
And mm. it's so dependent upon the resources and the support system a person has, how they respond to grief, I think. Mm. And I really do credit dialectical behavior therapy a lot as far as like being able to use that radical acceptance to like really like address mm. it. Like I'm like, this is happening. I can't change it. I can only decide how I cope, how I respond to it. That's the only thing mm. I have control over. So I've never heard of dialectical behavior therapy. And now I'm wondering, was that something that someone had told you about and you went looking for it or you tried other types of therapy and that led you into it what was what I was, was looking there? for something with help for past traumas and it's it was originally created for people who have borderline personality disorder and it has been shown to be effective for other things as well like uh, PTSD uh, eating disorders substance abuse and I really was attracted to what it was treating uh, from some past traumas that I had. So I was like, oh, that seems very, that seems like checkbox, you know, the stuff that I'm dealing with here. And just the, the bluntness of it. It wasn't like, we're going to change your perspective. Hmm. It wasn't hippy dippy that I guess that's the only word I can think mm -hmm. of. Like a lot of therapy is yeah. where it's like, you know, it wasn't like, how you know how how do how can we change our perspective on this it was like no this sucks it, it was very it's very to the point mm. it's very like face it you know take the bull by the horns and I, that was really appealing to me as was the the evidence i am i'm a very evidence based person i am not a scientist but i appreciate science a lot so finding something where it was very evidence-based was huge for me. They're, they use these uh, temperature techniques, for instance, like if you are um, in a place where you are having trouble regulating your emotions, they tell you to use cold items to decrease like your heart rate to calm yourself down because that has evidence and it's a spectrum. So if you're like a little upset, you can stand in front of a fan, you know, stand in front of the AC, more, more upset. You take like a frozen bag of peas and put it on your face. If you're mm. like, I'm about to go to the ER because I'm having a panic attack. It's so bad. You just take off your electronics and you go into a freezing cold shower, clothes on. And all mm. of those things, what they do is they like shock your system into a state of calm. So it's a lot about, um, like regulating your emotions. And that's a big part of what makes grief so tough is those big emotions. Mm. And I think for me, what happened was like, I was suffering and I got tired of suffering. I was like, I don't want it to hurt this bad, you know? And I think a lot of people feel guilt mm. from that as well when they're grieving and they're like, I, I don't want to hurt this bad anymore. And when you seek out relief, and you find that relief, there's a lot of judgment in the community. Like they're like, why aren't you still mourning? It, and it doesn't matter what the timeline is. Why aren't you more upset? Mm. You should only be upset. And I think that, that that's a lot of what prevents people oftentimes from finding relief. The, the idea that time heals all. I think as we've 
kind of progressed as a species, we kind of understood that that is true as long as you're putting the work in, right? Because grief can absolutely keep you static. You can go, this is now a state that I exist in. And I guess when you go back to old depictions of grief, the idea of uh, mourners, like widows especially, wearing black for the rest of their lives because that was the state they existed in. It's about going, actually, not to scare you, but if you don't do something, this could be you for the rest of rest of your days. There's also the societal expectation of that, too. And that goes back to mm. the patriarchy, to be completely blunt. Women are considered mm -hmm. the property of their husbands. So there is that this is still this man's woman. So she is tied to him and their relationship. We still do have a lot of that in our society, too, where women are defined by their relationships to others as opposed to who they are and what they do on their own, which is why I think that hmm. we have so much for widows specifically and why we have a lot of resources for them as well and why that is such a big thing for so many people is because you are mm. defined by your relationship with your husband. I, I still have that. You know, when I decided to start dating again, when I I was lonely, I wanted to be with somebody. There's nothing wrong with that. My husband mm -hmm. is dead. He's not coming back. <laughs> it was something we also talked about too. <laughs> And people are like, mm. have said, you're not being loyal to your husband. You must not be sad that he's gone. It's so soon, which was mm. odd to me because at the same time at his funeral, people were coming up to me and saying, you need to be strong for his parents because this is their only son. They can't have another child. You're very young and you will get married again soon. Mm. People were bringing up me getting married again soon at his funeral. So I felt like I couldn't win. Wow no matter what I did. You know, if I was lonely and I wanted companionship and whatever that meant, that was wrong. Mm -hmm. And if I was sad and I wasn't bucking up and chinning up and doing all of those things, you know, he wouldn't want me to be sad. He'd want me to, want me to be happy. Why was I still upset? Why wasn't I over this? You know, no matter what I did, mm. I, I couldn't do the right thing. And that was very frustrating. Hmm. But it, it, do, it does take a lot of work, too. I think that healing grief is very similar to healing any kind of physical ailment as well. I think that it's very, very hmm. painful in the beginning. And as you are getting treatment, as you are working on healing whatever it is that is in pain, it, hmm. it gets easier. And it's also very different for each person as well. You know, I, I almost think of it like chronic mm. illness, too. Like some people have different ways that chronic illness manifests for them. Everybody has different triggers. Mm. Everybody reacts differently to different treatments. The timeline's very different for everybody as far as like how they manage it. But I think the thing that does, I think something that is universal about it is the acceptance part of it. Like I, I have this. I don't want to suffer, so what can I do so I'm not suffering? It still hurts. It's still painful, but pain is different than suffering. Mm. It's weird, isn't it? Because there's a sense of your position as as a widow who is kind of going through that loneliness aspect. It's like it would almost be more culturally acceptable if you turned to like substance abuse, 
and spiraled out of control and people were like, well, that's what happens, rather than the idea of you going like on a date and being happy. They'd be like, it's not that. Whatever you're doing, that's not grief. Yes. <laughs> you know? Sub- substance abuse is more acceptable than... <laughs> it is. is it's, it's still not acceptable. <laughs> I think that they there is a very there is a very concrete idea of what people think grief widowhood should look like. There's a very very concrete timeline mm. for what people think it should look like for how you live your life for the decisions you make. You know, you need to wait two to five years before you start dating again. That's the appropriate timeline. You need to go back to work at this particular point. I think that's a, a large part of it too, is we we live in a capitalist world and you need to be okay enough to work, but that's it. You can't be okay enough to do mm. anything else. It's just about productivity. Because with your process of grief within that then, am I right in saying that you were essentially self-employed? Like what you and your husband did, that was your income. So there isn't someone... Or maybe, the, the te- technically is, but not a a boss, so to speak, like, oh, you're coming back into the office. It's kind of a, I mean, you could start today if you wanted to, but then it's also, it could be 100 days or however many days it is. How did you navigate that I had to. Situation? I had to go back to work because I was self-employed. There, there was no, my husband was terminally ill. He didn't have life insurance. There was no boss with any paid time off. And I had contracts too. We had mm. advertisers and I had gigs. I had to, I was able to take a week off before I went back to work. And the only reason I was able to take that week was because people in the voiceover and podcasting community raised some money for me so I could pay my bills that week. And I still struggled because I wasn't in a good state of mind. I I would listen back to those podcast Mm. episodes I was creating, listening to my work, and it was horrible. I I was grieving. I had, and it wasn't even, besides the fact of just my husband died, I, tried to resuscitate him before I knew he was dead on the phone with 911 and it was it's not pretty all of that is not pretty it's very traumatizing and mm. nobody was there to help me nobody was there to be like we'll take you in stay here don't worry about anything let's let you heal i had to go back to work and and i think that was what was really hurtful was that no there wasn't any safety net for me people were offended I went back to work but the only other option was homelessness mm-hmm. I, again then was was that something that you and your therapist were able to kind of go the reality of the situation is I have to be mindful of this I don't have the financial freedom to to grieve for months and then kind of come back to the office and everyone's like oh you're back it's no, I, I've, I've got shit to do. I've got yeah, bills that, to pay. That was, the radical acceptance. This is, this is what I have. These are my mm. options. I would have loved to take time off, to be totally honest. I would have loved to do that. Mm. And that when people were, were getting offended at me using my grief and my work, I was like, so are you going to take care of me then so I don't have to work? Because this is my only option. Mm. I don't have any other options. Nobody is here. There, there were no support systems. And I feel like that must be the the really bitter part of this scenario is finding a way to to deal with your grief in a way that, you know, like I say, helping others can help yourself. But then this pushback of like, you, here's you showing 
society a mirror of itself and be like, here's how I how here how any of us can deal with grief. And someone being like, I don't like the way that looks. Stop doing that. You're a bad person. And it's like, I've I'm telling you that I've literally just lost my husband. Like maybe don't have a go at me right now, <laughs> you know, or ever. Quite frankly, people, feel, people <laughs> felt very entitled to do that. I I think that mm. is something that is very part of our culture that was like people feeling very very entitled to pass judgment on something as opposed to just go like well that's not for me and turn away i appreciated that mm. more more so people just not showing up and people being like i don't like how she's doing that and just cutting me out of their lives that was preferable to people berating me sending me messages telling me how horrible I was, all the things I deserved to be done to me, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, and it still happens yeah. on a regular basis. I've now spoken with enough mental health professionals so that I'm pretty secure and knowing that I'm not doing anything wrong. Cause that was really hard for a while. I, I I'm not so arrogant mm. that I think like, I'm just making all the right choices all the time. And, you know, well, this is, this is what I think is right. So it must be right. I took those criticisms and I, I thought about it and I went out, I sought out hmm. other people who are far more educated than I am and asked them, I'm like, is this, am I doing something wrong? Am I being exploitative? Am I, am I being an attention whore? Am I, you know, doing all, am I being disrespectful towards my husband? None of this feels wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't wrong. Am I, am I in the wrong? And I, I mm. sought out all of those people that would have good insight to that, you know, like, um, licensed clinical social workers, psychologists, grief therapists, who oftentimes were widows themselves too. And not, I, I've tried mm. to get a really, really good sample size on that because I didn't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to do anything that is going to be unhealthy or harmful towards myself or others. And I couldn't find anybody who had any kind of degree or anything that was like, no, what you're doing is inherently wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Oh god, I just had something. Okay. It's left my brain. That happens. Um Oh no, it's, it's worse as well because I was literally just thinking the idea is slipping away. Hold on to it. And that makes it go. Like that's Oh, I totally that's get it. it. I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you keep talking though, then um, it'll come back. <laughs> and yeah. then you just rev the engine and there you go. It's Oh, what was it? No, so no, now I'm stressing that's about okay. it. We'll just keep um, talking and then you'll go, oh yeah, and it'll come back. <laughs> so, well, because there were several things, right? So there was one thing from earlier on, which I kind of want to want to ask because it's right kind of tickling my brain. When you saw your therapist for the first time, which is the one that I, I'm going to presume that you're still with, yeah? So you're with that therapist. And obviously you were saying you had some trauma that you kind of came brought to the table, but also being like, by the way, elephant in the room, here's something we'll have to deal with down the line. Were they like, okay, wow, never had to deal with that before. They're like, all right, cool. This is this is maybe something that some, well, actually, no, it can't be that typical because you said it's one in 300,000 people. So, you know, what was their response to you going, 
here is my stuff as on the table as anyone could ever well, present. The condition he had was very rare, but having a spouse who's terminally ill is not, you know, like, so like course, yeah. anticipatory grief, knowing that my husband is going to die at some point in the nearish future. That was the tougher part was, I don't know if it was tougher or not, mm. but I, I don't want to say that and play grief Olympics and compare but it was something that was particularly tough for me was not having like a timeline. It wasn't like, okay, uh, he has stage four cancer, probably six months left. There was none of that. It was like, he could live to be 50. He could die in five minutes. We don't know. You know, that was really mm. hard. I, you know, how do you make plans? <laughs> how do you do anything like with mm. that kind of variable? you know, that was really tough, mm. but I also got very lucky. And that was also what I liked about dialectical behavior therapy was those therapists. I don't know if this is DBT, like across the board, or if it was just the ones that I ended up with the DBT therapists are like, Oh yeah, we've seen some shit. And they all use dark humor to cope <laughs> and nothing shook these people. Okay. They were very, just like calm, mm. very like matter of fact, empathetic, but, you know, like you'd say something mm. and they'd go, that sounds really hard. You know, they, they would reiterate what you were saying. They validate it, you know, mm. like that sounds really hard. How, how should we cope with it? You know? Mm. Was there ever a point in that process? And, you know, obviously you don't need to talk about your therapy um, and as candidly as we talk <laughs> about other things. So I appreciate that's much, that's maybe more personal than <laughs> the other stuff which is kind of bizarre um but was there ever a point where you were like trying to pull back from therapy just like fuck all of this it's that life just sucks i don't want to deal mm. with any of this i think so but it, it, i think it was pretty brief because i hmm. i knew i had to deal with it and, and even if it wasn't for me it was for others you know at the very least my dog that's the, at the very, very least, my dog. But the times where it was like, yeah, it just sucks. I don't want to deal with this. That when it would lead to like suicidal ideation, I think for me that the turning point with that, and again, I, I have these epiphanies and I don't always know what like causes them, but I would have those realizations. And at one point it was like, if I end my life as an atheist, that's it. There's no heaven, there's no afterlife, there's no do-over. I'm not going to come back as anything. It's just lights out forever. And that takes away the chance at things getting better. Like if I'm alive, if I'm here, if I'm working on this stuff, then there's a chance things can get better. And even if that chance is slim, that's still a greater chance than nothing, which is what happens when you end your mm. life. So that, that to me was a big turning point is when things got really, really hard, I would think it's bet it's still better than nothing. I'm not in so much pain or it's not like so hopeless where I'm like, this will never get better. There is still a chance it will. And then a year, about a year and a half later, things got a lot better. And I was really glad that I stuck around because I was like, wow, I almost missed out on all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's that hindsight element, isn't it? Which I think a lot of therapists try and 
present, but it's difficult if you if you're the kind of proactive person that can see that and just kind of be literal and take it for what it is. Like you said, if if I end things now, that's it. That's as good as anything ever got. But if I stick around, things can get better. Um, it's happened again. It's okay. That's a hard thing for me to still believe too in this year that we're living in as somebody who mm. is not formally educated but like reads history books for fun like I look at hmm. how the world is right now and I look at historical precedent and I'm like mm, this might not get better you know it's it's hard to wrap my head around that even more than the part with like my own personal traumas that was really tough because I lost hmm. uh, my, my husband died November 2019 and I'm like okay so my world's over oh, wow. and then 2020 happened I'm like oh the world might be over <laughs> I'm like I'm nobody I'm just some asshole in California like talking about their trauma on the internet and then there was this global grief at the end of so many things you know this this mm. big this big realization of what is actually happening in the world and all of these tough things to cope with i think in in the hesitancy or not the hesitancy in the uh, immediacy of people wanting to move on from covid there's been some things that we have absolutely forgotten and it's during that first year that funerals didn't happen like that like you know you kind of talk about the experience of being at george's funeral just even imagine just a few months down the line and it would have been like so i lost him and also no one was there like th th we didn't have a thing and so many people that was the reality and no one is campaigning for those people to be like hey maybe i don't know give those guys a day or something <laughs> like give them a bank holiday where they just don't have to do shit and be like really sorry about that you know it's just like that no, move on and that's to me that's insane because you we do put a lot of emphasis on funerals, don't we? And rightly or wrongly, because you don't need a specific day that is arbitrary, essentially, to that person's memory. We do still do that. And I'm the kind of person who's just like, Christmas is stupid. You can do that at any yeah. time of the year. Why do we stress ourselves out by doing it all at once? You know, you could you could have a day of mourning every day of the week for someone if you wanted to. Or you can be like, funeral, that's it. Move on, you know, which mm -hmm. some people choose to do. Um, but I think there is this greater collective awareness of grief because of that global grief that you mentioned. I guess a question I have for you, because that was just a tangent that led to nothing. Oh, I think it was uh, relevant. Is, <laughs> is, um, you know, dark comedy, for sure, I can understand that as someone who very much enjoys it myself. And maybe that is why, to some extent, I love working with people one-on-one -on -one and doing counseling and things like that. But you've become somewhat of a figurehead for the conversation around grief. Even though you're seemingly very content with talking about your grief, was it always easy and accessible to talk to others about it? Or is that something that you've had to be like, oh shit, this is kind of, this is my life transforming now. I need to be... Uh, maybe I need to develop in some ways to allow people to come in because that's just the role I now inhibit. Maybe. I think it, I think it's been an evolution 
with that because it really did truly start out at first as I have contracts, I need to pay the bills and I can't talk about anything else but this right now. It was very healing Mm. to make jokes about it, to find other people who got it because a lot of people in my life at the time were horrified at the things I was saying, at the jokes I was making. But for me, I made jokes over my husband's corpse to the paramedics. Like I, I wanted to keep his body. They were trying to take his body and I'm like, no, I'd like to keep this. And I wanted to keep it because it was part of my suicide plan. I wanted to take my life and then die next to him, be with him. And Hmm. they're trying to take away his body. And I started to say that like, no, I need you to leave the body with me because I need it to kill myself. And I realized as I'm saying that though, because of my background, I'm like, oh, they're going to 5150 me, which is like, you know, take me to psych. Like, and if I Mm. say that I want to kill myself. So I stopped halfway through the sentence Mm. and I was like, no, I need you to leave the body with me. I guess you can't though. Otherwise we're liable to end up with like a Norman Bates situation from psycho, you know, and that's not good. Right. And they were cracking up. And I I felt good. I was like, oh, I just made him laugh, you know? (laughs) So I kept, yeah. The day's not wasted. (laughs) I'm like, oh, we're doing a comedy show. Okay. (laughs) And I just kept going. I kept making jokes. Like I was like, or I mean, like maybe you could leave the body with me and it goes more in like a weekend at Bernie's direction. I just can like sling him over my shoulder, (laughs) see how long it takes for people to notice, (laughs) you know, he's dead. Like that's a cute and quirky movie. That's not creepy. You know, maybe this can be fun. And they were, I I kept like making jokes, you know, like they were, um, he was very young and I called the police so that, you know, they come in and he was very young. He's dead in the kitchen. So they check the house. It's pretty standard. And like, they were like, is there anything we need to be worried about in the bedroom? And like, I was like, I didn't know that they were talking about like a firearm or something like that. Any weapons. I was like, oh yeah, we have this drawer filled with sex stuff. I don't want to like, make sure you like, you know, and they like, they were laughing about it too. And they were like, you know, was he, was there anything, you know, going on before this? They It's just standard questions they ask, you know, and I'm like, like they're asked to like check his phone and stuff. And I was like, I was like, I just sent him a nude though. Like I don't like, I was like making all these jokes and they kept laughing about it. And I, I just, I couldn't stop. I kept doing it and I found that relief. And one of the paramedics that day, um, and the trauma specialist said this too, I was making these, these jokes and then I would sob and then I'd make a joke and then I'd break down and sob and then I'd make a joke. And you know, kind of pull myself together and both of them, they were like, you're going to be okay. Like just by your reaction, Mm. they got it. You know, these are people that see Mm. this trauma and these dead bodies and this horrible, these horrible things day after day after day, it's part of their jobs and they get it. They use dark humor to cope too. It gives you some relief. And Mm. they were like this, it's, it's a good sign that you're doing this. They're like, you're going to make it. Are you aware of the book This Is Going to Hurt by Dr. Adam Kay? Okay, so that was a a super popular book in in the UK and then it became a TV show and uh, now it's a show that he does up and down the country. He, He was a junior doctor and basically kept all of his journals from when he was a junior doctor to then quitting and then at a certain point they were like, right, you can get rid of all of these now. And he's a comedy writer, so he put them all into these like this memoir and he basically kind of talks about like 
to survive in um he was in obzangini to survive in that world he had to use dark humor like he's it's all it's all fair game essentially and it's just it seems to be an interesting pattern like you were saying before that cognitive kind of development that the ability to understand that dark humor is not laughing at the thing but laughing almost like at the experience the absurdity of life is that's what all comes exactly people (laughs) have this idea that you are being disrespectful that you're laughing at the person that you're you're laughing at the pain Mm. you know and and that's that's not what's happening it's the absurdism around it you've nailed it on the head Mm. Because those jokes you were making for, uh, in the initial aftermath of it, like that's almost, you know, that's almost like yes. improv. Right? Like, <laughs> oh, here's a, th- here's a situation. When when was the first written dead husband joke for you? And was it any good or were you like, oh, I'm a monster? <laughs> I thought I was a monster because of people's reactions. Like my husband and I were using dark humor and making jokes about his condition and my trauma, like and anything that was hard or scary we would make jokes about it Mm. that's how we coped so i i didn't think it it didn't occur to me that it was wrong until other people started telling me that it was wrong like it was the reactions like i Mm. what did i say i said uh like oh the support dropped off about as fast as my husband's coffin into the ground like when it came to people being there for me like I, i shared that online or something and there was somebody that was just like absolutely horrified, like sent me this, like who was in my life at the time. We don't speak anymore because she was so Mm. mean about it. Just like, like you need to stop posting this stuff. I know your, your brain's not right right now because of all of this. And you're going to regret this later. And you need to think about other people and how they're going to see this. Like what the fuck is wrong with you there? Like you are so Mm. horrible and on and on and on and on. And I was like, oh, I, I'm doing something wrong. I thought this was like, this is my grief. This mm. is my husband. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I was the closest person to him. And he'd be, I knew him really well. <laughs> he wouldn't have an issue with any of this. And that, mm. that was the part that, that made me question it. And I, I kept reaching out to people for like that first year and a half, like getting their opinions. Like, am I doing something wrong? And what was very telling to me was that nobody that was a professional or educated thought I was doing something wrong, but the opposite of that sure did. (laughs) Wow. I mean, did that really have an impact then on your, on your social circle and even maybe even your professional circle? Because I could understand, especially not to be stereotypical, but in America, there are some things that are just very sacred. The idea of not respecting the dead is like, nope we don't want to know about that so it's a very deeply conservative and religious country like you know you're not wrong that that was a a lot of it was people have these really archaic beliefs here we are very influenced by our history when it comes to that fundamentalist christian ideals those those st- i mean we both know what's going on here it it's it's mm-hmm. still a big big influence here you know that there's very much a pressure to conform to those ideals that 
are are very fundamentalist and it, it did it changed Hmm. almost my entire social circle with my professional it was like a it was like a coin toss like some people were like oh my god I knew this is why we were friends or why we always got along in sessions or whatever I totally like I'm the same way I get this some people Hmm. I became closer to them because of that it was like oh now this is one more thing we have in common other people were completely appalled you know and cut themselves off from me so it it was it was a very very big change. I would, I think largely. I lost most people, close to me, which people are very surprised to find out because I live in Southern California, so they assume that this is kind of like a progressive utopia, and it, it's not. I live in San Diego, and it, it's it's mm. pretty conservative in San Diego as well. Um, so I I kind mm. of had to rebuild, and and they call that secondary loss when you lose Hmm. your person there's just the death and then there's all the things that you lose surrounding that so it was like there was the death of my husband there was the death of all of those relationships that I had the the secondary losses were many for me specific particularly Hmm. it's gonna sound like a bit of a bastard asking this question (laughs) but just like you know the the thing is you know the the loss of your husband has been something that you've been able to have these jokes about are you able to have jokes at the secondary loss because there's a part of me which feels like that's less like that's more just oh this is really sad whereas well actually (laughs) just tripping over myself now you were nodding your head so i'll let you finish off that sentence (laughs) So jokes are secondary loss. I think loss. so. I, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I, I do make jokes about the secondary loss uh, losses, like the way that people react. Um, one of the sketches, like the bits that I do online, a lot of times has to do with like things I say. And that's like the last time I hear from that person. <laughs> like they're like, like somebody, there, there was one that I did where um, somebody was like, oh my God, you should totally go for it. What do you have to lose? And I go, well, not my husband. <laughs> and they just like look at me like horrified. And it's like that's, a lot of that stuff is based on reality. You know, it's like I make a joke and that person is so appalled. <laughs> and it's like we don't talk anymore now. They don't, they don't want to talk to me anymore. <laughs> See, I'm imagining a sketch now where someone has been listening to you maybe as part of your inner circle and they've they've heard your experiences of doing comedy through grief to to cope with it and has gone well that's what I'm gonna do but they've got no no comedy background they don't like telling jokes and they're just like just the worst and most miserable stand-up set you've ever experienced and they go well that was a dreadful idea I'm never in your life again so um can (laughs) confirm yes (laughs) I have seen that happen. <laughs> and I try oh, no. not to be a jerk about it, you know, <laughs> like. Oh, well, if a set's bad. Maybe you leave bad. it to the professionals, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, right. I, I feel like I've used my hour generously with you, so I do not want to keep you much longer. If I could, though, I feel like anyone who's listening that has enjoyed this conversation, certainly as much as I have, and I know I could keep talking to you I'd for love to hours come back right sometime. now um oh absolutely let's i've you know what i've said that to every single guest i've had on the podcast and i've only done it with let's one it person too. thus far but i feel like <laughs> yeah. i can go around again yeah okay um so would it be possible that you could just give a quick overview of what um 
death is hilarious is just so people who are listening can be like that's that's because that's your flagship thing isn't it you do lots of other podcasts and shows but that's like the main one so uh death is hilarious grief relief foundation is a nonprofit, and it provides content and services for people that are using humor to cope with grief so we provide peer-to-peer support groups online we provide grief mentorships and podcast creation as well and resource connections and everything is provided at no cost to the recipient hmm. um so you can find out more about our services and take advantage of them at deathishilarious.com perfect so that's where to find the podcast do you promote your own socials at all is that something you want people yes. trying to follow We're, you on, that, uh, on instagram mostly at uh that death pod um that's us and i do a lot of like my own grief content my my comedy uh i'm on tiktok at tawny platis so that's just my first and my last name cool (laughs) perfect well thank you so much for your time sorry about the weird interval (laughs) in the middle but is what it is um yeah it's again i feel like there's so many different threads to talk about we didn't even really get onto the whole conceit of this podcast which was I'm someone who's never dealt with severe grief or grief of the immediacy of someone. It's always been someone on like the second degree. So maybe that's what we'll talk about next time. Hopefully not because I'm experiencing that grief and I'm like, I need some help. Uh, I've written some jokes. I'm pretty sure they're evil. Uh, <laughs> no, I'd love to talk with you again anytime. Let's get, let's get something on the calendar. Perfect. All right. Well, I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and you as well. thank you so much again it was lovely talking with you i'm glad you exist is made independently by me john leo you can stalk me on instagram where i often post photos of dogs at john leo which is j-o-h-n-l-i-o-t and find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash i'm glad podcast where i rarely post anything at all but you can get in contact there Shout out to my mate Sizzlebird for providing the music for today's episode. Go check out the description for where you can find him and support his excellent chillstep violin tunes. And now, all that remains to be said, if you've made it this far to hear my voice, well, I'm glad you exist. <laughs>